ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This has been a terrible ordeal uh, for everyone concerned and I hope that uh, our actions today um, can put some closure on this 20-year-old matter. New South Wales Attorney General Mike Daly announcing the pardon of Kathleen Folbig, who has spent the last 20 years in jail for the killing of her four children. Why is she being released now? Hi, Damien Carrick with you. That's coming up shortly here on The Law Report. First, in a landmark legal decision, Federal Court Judge Anthony Bazanko has thrown out the defamation action brought by Ben Robert Smith, one of Australia's most decorated soldiers. It was a total victory for The Age, The Sydney Morning Herald and The Canberra Times. The newspapers who published damning articles in 2018 about the former member of the elite SAS. Today is a day of justice for those brave men of the SAS who stood up and told the truth about who Ben Robert Smith is. A war criminal, a bully and a liar. Investigative reporter Nick McKenzie there speaking on the steps of the court following the decision. The judge was satisfied to the civil standard of the balance of probabilities that allegations Mr Robert Smith was involved or complicit in four unlawful killings in Afghanistan were substantially true. University of Sydney Professor David Rolfe is one of Australia's leading experts in defamation law. He's been reading the landmark 736-page decision which was released on Monday afternoon. David Rolfe, how significant is this decision? Look, this is obviously a very significant decision because the stakes on both sides were incredibly high. So on the one hand, you had a very prominent Victoria Cross winner, war hero in a country which, of course, reveres the Anzac tradition. And he put in issue incredibly serious allegations about his conduct in combat and at home. So allegations of murder and bullying and domestic violence. And on the other hand, you had very serious public interest journalism of high calibre um, and you had a number of high profile journalists undertaking significant investigation and a series of articles raising these allegations. And so you here have a contest between very high stakes and here the media outlets prevailed. It was a comprehensive victory for the media outlets. A huge win for the press. Yes, yes, indeed. What can we now say about Ben Roberts-Smith? How can we describe him? What did the judge find? So the judge here found that uh, the majority of the imputations which Ben Robert Smith pleaded were substantially true. So Ben Robert Smith put in issue a range of allegations about murder, about bullying, about assault, about domestic violence. The domestic violence imputations and some of the imputations relating to conduct in combat were found not to be substantially true, but overwhelmingly the imputations about the other aspects were all found to be true and they were, as Justice Bazanko pointed out, imputations of the most serious kind. And so here, Justice Bazanko found that it was substantially true that Ben Robert Smith either murdered or was complicit in the murder of a number of Afghans 
in combat. And so the outcome of this is that Ben Robert Smith, as Justice Basenko ultimately concludes, doesn't have a good reputation at all and has a very bad reputation in relation to these very imputations. The, the imputations that, that he listed in his cause of action. Now, now, this, of course, is a civil case in a civil court. Mm. Ben Robert Smith was not found guilty of any criminal offence. For that to happen, the prosecution would have to establish guilt beyond reasonable doubt, not just that an event took place on the balance of probabilities. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So, um, obviously, in any criminal proceedings, that would be judged by the criminal standard of proof. The outcome of that, if the prosecution were successful in discharging, that standard of proof would be that there would be punitive consequences, including imprisonment. The consequence here is obviously different. So, this is concerned with what you can say about Ben Robert Smith's reputation. And so here applying the civil standard of proof, but obviously informed by the seriousness of the allegations, uh, these being allegations of the most serious kind, what Justice Bazanko found that it was more probable than not, that it was true that Robert Smith engaged in the range of conduct that he himself put in issue. So the scale of this trial was extraordinary. 110 days of evidence, 41 witnesses. I think the media called 26, including soldiers and ex-soldiers and, and three Afghans who witnessed a man being kicked over a cliff, um, which is one of the killings uh, which was found to be substantially true. Uh, ben Robert Smith uh, had 15 witnesses uh, to refute the imputations. There were 6,186 pages of transcript, and we have now this 736-page decision. Now, this is a civil case. The judge found that the allegations were either substantially true or contextually true. What's the difference between the two? So substantial truth is the primary defence of primary version of truth. So if you can prove that something is substantially true, then you have a complete defence. So the idea of truth as a defence to defamation is that you're only entitled to the reputation that you deserve, not the reputation that you in fact have. So if you've been enjoying the benefit of a very high reputation and people publish allegations about you and the publisher is able to prove that they're substantially true, then there's a complete defence. No wrong is done to your reputation the effect of this is simply that by publishing those allegations, your reputation is brought down to the level that it always should have been at. Contextual truth is a fallback defence which is created under statute, which allows a publisher to try and justify as many imputations as possible and then to weigh them against the imputations that they aren't able to prove to be true that arise out of the same publication. So you see this in this case in relation to the third group of articles where there are imputations which the publishers were able to justify, were able to prove to be substantially true. But there were also a handful of imputations that they were unable to defend. And so contextual truth is a statutory defence that allows uh, the publishers to say weighing the truth against the falsity, is the truth such that no further harm is done to the applicant's reputation by the publication of the false imputations? And so here, Justice Bazanko was very clear, given the truth of what had been published about Robert Smith's reputation, uh, the additional contextual imputations, which were not proven to be true, were so overwhelmed by the truth that those false allegations couldn't further injure his reputation. And so in relation to that, a defence of contextual truth was able to succeed. So it's a fallback defence. So in other words, 
the judge found that um, the allegations that he was involved in four unlawful killings were found to be substantially true and the allegations, for instance, around bullying and domestic violence, there was not enough evidence to establish that they were substantially true. But his reputation as somebody who had committed four unlawful killings was now so low that it could not be further reduced by allegations being substantiated of domestic violence and bullying. Yes, that was the ultimate conclusion that Justice Bozanko reached, yes. So, David Rolfe, are you surprised by this decision? Because it is it is an emphatic and, and fundamental victory for the newspapers. Given the complexity of this case, are you surprised by how clear the judge was in coming down on one side as opposed to the other? Well, um, as you've already pointed out, there were over 100 days of hearings, multiple witnesses on both sides. The transcript was incredibly long as a result of that. And so the fact-finding task here was significant. And so, of course, when you take into account the factual complexity of the case and the fact that it's ordinarily fairly difficult for media outlets to... or the experience of media outlets is not that they win these sorts of cases routinely... I think that that was significant and somewhat surprising. Mm. Now, reading the full decision, what stood out for you? I think what stood out was the factual complexity of the case. So, obviously, that was reflected in the trial because we heard the evidence going over such a period of time. But I also think the assessment of credibility here was incredibly important. And I thought that that stood out in the judgment. So towards the beginning of the judgment, Justice Bazanko makes it clear that he is very critical of Ben Robert Smith's evidence in material respects. But that the fact that he finds that evidence unconvincing doesn't mean that somehow the publishers win by default. The question becomes given that the publisher has to demonstrate a defensive justification, have they put together sort of sufficiently cogent evidence to satisfy Justice Bazenko that it's true? But he was uh, saying that Ben Robert Smith was not an honest and reliable witness. Yes, that's right. And that becomes particularly clear towards the end of the judgment where you have all of the evidence about intimidation of witnesses, lying about the USB, sticks being buried in the backyard, all of those sorts of findings about Ben Robert Smith's conduct in relation to the case. I think also the clarity about questions of motive here was sort of very interesting in the fact-finding as well. So Justice Bazanko was very clear that Ben Robert Smith had motive to give self-serving evidence, whereas those who had been called, the array of people who had been called on the behalf of the publishers, didn't have that motive and there wasn't the possibility for them to have concluded on the sort of scale that would have been necessary in order to have significant reservations about their evidence. Well, this case was, of course, commenced by Ben Robert Smith to vindicate his reputation, and the outcome has been the complete opposite. He's now in a much worse position than he was before. I think that some commentators have described this as a catastrophic miscalculation. Yes, look, I mean, all litigation is risky and, you know, defamation litigation is risky because you're putting your reputation on the line. You're asking the court to adjudicate on your reputation. And so here, Ben Robert Smith obviously had a very high reputation. There were very serious allegations made about him. He placed himself before the court. And, you know, here, the outcome of the decision was very clear that he didn't have the reputation that he had possessed 
all of these things that have been said about him, which were highly damaging, were found to be substantially true. He didn't have to do this. This was something that he decided to do. And that's what happens in defamation cases. You're not compelled to sue for defamation and you run a risk. And here that risk materialised in a very, very significant way. He could, of course, appeal. Um, This does have a long way to go. Well, potentially. So there is the prospect of an appeal and where you have something that is as factually complex as this, you would expect that legal advisors would be going through the fact finding sort of very carefully. So there's the potential for this to continue, yes. The massive costs in this case, which are $25 million or above, do costs like this make investigative journalism too difficult, too costly for, for organisations to embrace? Well, I mean, investigative journalism in the first place is resource intensive. So, you know, in order to do investigative journalism properly, you have to devote those sorts of resources. And then when it carries the risk of defamation litigation on top of it, that compounds the cost of (laughs) undertaking that journalism. And potentially, even if you're successful, you may be left out of pocket to a certain extent, even if you succeed. So I do think that uh, the threat of defamation litigation makes publishers more averse. And I do think the cost associated with defamation litigation for serious investigative journalism makes it even more difficult. And of course, this all occurs in the context of a sort of shifting media environment where, you know, the sort of mass media that we were sort of used to in the 20th century with that sort of model of investigative journalism sort of funded by sort of commercial revenue streams, that really doesn't exist in the way that it did. So where you've got a situation now where commercial media enterprises don't have the sort of revenue necessarily to fund this. It's a huge investment now and a risky investment to engage in investigative journalism, compounded by the risk of the threat of defamation litigation on top of that. So I do think that it makes it more difficult. Finally, this ruling, of course, is a, this is a ruling in a defamation case, a civil action. Does this ruling have any bearing on the likelihood of a potential criminal trial for the, for the allegations spelled out in these articles? Well, it wouldn't have any direct bearing. I think uh, the importance of the findings in this case is that it will raise pressure on the various investigating and prosecuting authorities to take seriously the prospect of bringing charges in some form against Robert Smith. But it doesn't have a direct bearing on any criminal proceedings. University of Sydney Professor David Rolfe, one of Australia's leading experts in defamation law. Thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Thank you. This week, three-time convicted murderer Kathleen Tholbig was pardoned and set free from jail after 20 years behind bars. New South Wales Attorney-General Mike Daly took this dramatic step after receiving a summary of the findings of a commission of inquiry headed by a former New South Wales Chief Justice. I consider that his reasons establish exceptional circumstances of the kind that weigh heavily in favour of the grant of a free pardon and that in the interest of justice, Ms Folbig should be released from custody as soon as possible. And so this morning at 9.30 I met with the Governor. I recommended that the Governor should exercise the raw prerogative of mercy and grant Ms Folbig an unconditional pardon. The Governor agreed. Ms Folbig has now been pardoned. So how did we get to this point 20 years into a 25-year sentence? 
UNSW Associate Professor Mera San Roque is an expert in evidence law. Mera San Roque, who is Kathleen Folbig and how did her four children die? Well, that that really is the key question here. So, as you say, she was convicted in relation to the deaths of her four very young children. Uh, The youngest, Caleb, died when he was 19 days old. Patrick, when he was, I think, about eight months old. Sarah, when she was 10 and a half months old. And um, the oldest, Laura, when she was 18 months old, over about a 10-year period. And at the time of her trial, there was no evidence, uh, medical evidence or scientific evidence that showed cause of death. The Crown case was that she had smothered the children and the Crown case relied on a range of other key reasonings. So the idea of it being very unlikely that so many children would die in one family of natural causes. They relied on uh, diary entries that um, Kathleen had written over the years, which the prosecution said constituted admissions and some other evidence about the way that she treated the children and evidence from, in the end, the children's father, who indicated that he felt that she was responsible for their deaths. So her attempts to overturn her convictions in the appeal courts were unsuccessful. Years later, there was a commission of inquiry and then a a court of appeal decision. Then now a second commission of inquiry, the current one. Many, many, many years down the track, why is this current commission of inquiry, headed by former Chief Justice of New South Wales, Tom Bathurst, able to shift the dial, to reach a conclusion that there are reasonable doubts in all her convictions? The 2019 inquiry heard that there was new scientific evidence that indicated that there were potential natural causes in relation to the deaths, particularly of Laura and Sarah. And towards the end of that first inquiry, that evidence started to look much stronger. But that first inquiry declined to reopen and reconsider the strengthening evidence in relation to that. By the time we get to 2021, a group of 90 scientists signed a petition indicating that there was now very strong evidence supporting natural causes in relation to the deaths, particularly of um, Sarah and Laura, a genetic uh, variant that would cause cardiac arrhythmia. And I think that alongside perhaps some other misgivings in relation to the first inquiry prompted the opening of the second inquiry, which ran towards the end of last year and then into early 2023. So, So science has played the central role in creating reasonable doubt in these four convictions? Yeah, certainly very important to the second inquiry and important to the conclusions of that inquiry and as indicated in Mr Bathurst's memorandum that was issued yesterday is that the scientific evidence particularly in relation to the deaths of those two girls was important in shifting the dial. It gave much stronger support to the idea that there was natural causes behind the deaths of those two children but the second inquiry also pointed to natural causes um, being plausible explanation for Patrick and Caleb's death. And then what became really important there, and this is something that Mr Bathurst indicates, is that a key part of the reasoning in the case was the inherent unlikelihood of four children dying of natural causes. So once you have strong evidence that supports a an innocent explanation for the deaths of at least two and potentially three and up to four of those children, that key evidence 
what's called coincidence reasoning um, falls away. Like it becomes impossible to talk about inherent unlikelihood in those circumstances. And, and what did Tom Bathurst have to say about the diary entries, which which were yeah. pointed to as as, as confessions uh, in her own yeah. handwriting? Yeah, and again, I think that was a really important part of this second inquiry. The second inquiry heard evidence from experts on how we should interpret those diaries and place them very much more in the context of understanding what would be a reaction to such an extraordinary event um, and put them within what you might call the range of normal responses to an extraordinary event. And by contrast, in the first uh, inquiry, the inquirer declined to hear that evidence, preferring to rely on what they saw as common sense. And there was far more emphasis, I think, on the reading of the diaries or over-reliance of the diaries in that first inquiry. Whereas in the second inquiry, what Bathurst says is that he was really accepting evidence that suggests that they were the writings of a grieving, possibly depressed mother, blaming herself for the death of each child, as distinct from admissions that she murdered or otherwise harmed them. It's quoting from his memo. Okay, so the Attorney-General has received the summary of findings from former Chief Justice uh, Tom Bathurst and on the, on the basis of that he, he has uh, released Kathleen Folbig and pardoned her, but her convictions have not been quashed. What will happen now? Yeah, so that's a really important point. Um, so a pardon is quite different to the quashing of the conviction. So a pardon is something that is exercised by the governor. It's a very strong signal in terms of um, the approach to this case, but the convictions can only be quashed by the Court of Criminal Appeal. So uh, Mr Bathurst they can recommend, can refer the case to the Court of Criminal Appeal for the quashing of the convictions, and Miss Volbing herself can apply for that now that she's been granted that pardon. And so that's what we would expect to happen next, is that once uh, Commissioner Bathurst has handed down his report, that there will be proceedings initiated in the Court of Criminal Appeal to quash those convictions. And, I mean, I would expect that that will be the result, that the convictions will be quashed. And what sort of compensation might Kathleen Folbig be entitled to? I mean, imagine 20 years of your life taken away from you. So, I mean, that's a very difficult question and I, I wouldn't want to speculate on on the sort of actual amount, but I guess the obvious comparator is Lindy Chamberlain. Um, she was convicted in 82, released in 86, with her convictions being quashed in 1988. And she received over a million dollars in compensation for that period of imprisonment, which was as a result of a wrongful conviction. So, in this case, obviously, we're looking at a much longer period. And I think perhaps particularly important to note that concerns about the scientific evidence uh, were being raised uh, back in sort of 2012 at least, and that the first petition was lodged in 2015. So it's even taken nearly eight years from the lodging of the first petition before the first inquiry to where we are today. So even if we were to look at that period, it's substantially longer than uh, Lindy Chamberlain was wrongfully imprisoned. You mentioned Lindy Chamberlain. In your view, how big a factor was the gender of Kathleen Folbig? (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's an enormously important part of the story. Um, And as you say, I mean, that's one of the obvious parallels with Lindy Chamberlain. I mean, there was a range of different things that um, draw that parallel. I think there's very clear gendered assumptions around motherhood that were running across both of those cases. Gendered assumptions about what would look like an ordinary or normal or appropriate response to the deaths of your children. And that was certainly something that was very apparent in the trial, that the prosecution was relying on ideas about gendered expectations around motherhood in order to support the case against Kathleen Folbig. I think the reliance on the diaries also is is very much gendered. I mean, they, they were being interpreted as if they were sort of straightforward confessions rather than within the context. And I think even the coincidence evidence uh, drew on that because a lot of the things that were said to be striking similarities were really just the ordinary incidents of the fact that Miss Volbig was the primary carer of her children and therefore was most likely to be the one who would find them in the cot at the time. Now, moving forward, this case has been a catalyst for calls to create a Criminal Cases Review Commission. Yeah. What would that body do and how important do you think it would be? Um, I think it would be very important for us to follow the lead of jurisdictions like New Zealand, Canada and the UK to establish you know, a permanent criminal cases review commission. It's something that's been uh, operating in the UK now for some decades, I understand. Um, I think it would just create a much more sort of systematic and efficient way of addressing both these kinds of cases, but other cases where either new evidence has emerged or whether real concerns about the way that the conviction has been secured have emerged. I mean, this was an extraordinary case in many respects. Um, Obviously, an enormous amount of resources has gone in to reaching the, the conclusions that we have reached. And I think something like a Criminal Cases Review Commission would be a much more appropriate and better way for us to be able to address these kinds of cases. It would have the resources to investigate, it would have the resources to really evaluate where the systemic issues lie with each of those cases and wouldn't require this kind of ad hoc inquiry process that we've we've seen as being needed here. Finally, the developments in science seem to be really at the heart of where we find ourselves now. Um, how well does the law deal with developing scientific knowledge? Yeah, I mean, I think it certainly raises challenges in relation to that. And as you say, I mean, the, the sort of the, the very clear shift in the sort of the certainty around that science or the very clear shift in that scientific knowledge um, helped us towards where we were. Um, I think some of the scientists who were involved in the inquiry uh, saw it as a very positive way for the law to be able to engage with scientific knowledge. And there's probably no reason why we couldn't look at what was positive in that uh, process, the fact that there was a really collaborative effort between the inquiry and scientists to identify them the best experts couldn't actually be sort of transferred back certainly to something like a criminal cases review commission but perhaps even to a trial level as well where you have areas like this where you've got really uh, new and emerging scientific knowledge as being critical to the case that you couldn't take some of the lessons from the second inquiry and transfer them back into uh, a more sort of ordinary day-to-day process. And the, the, what's extraordinary about this case was the coming together of, of the, the scientific uh, uh, luminaries and establishments to, to, yeah. to keep on knocking on the door of the courts and say, look, yes. you, you've, got to, you've got to look at this again and you've got to look at it with, yeah. with fresh eyes and, and with, with the new evidence. That, that's what seems to be so profound here. 
Yeah, and I think, I mean, a huge credit to those scientists who were willing to um, sort of take that step and really keep pushing. But I think also a huge credit to Ms. Volbeck herself and her legal team and her supporters who also kept that pressure up over over the years. I mean, that was really critical to the scientists in a sense, noticing the case and then being able to bring to bear their expertise on this this problem. So I think it's a joint effort there. And I guess another example of how, you know, the law and science can actually collaborate effectively in this sort of process. But it shouldn't need to take this long and it shouldn't need to take this kind of exceptional process to to, to deal with this kind of case. Associate Professor uh, Mera Sanrock from UNSW, uh, thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. You're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. A big thanks to producer this week, Maria Tickle, and to technical producer, Brendan O'Neill. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.